0: Hey, everybody. It is Tuesday, February 13th. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Moshe Wanunu, still here in Tel Aviv.
1: And I'm Jill Wagner. These are my confessions. <laughs> Mosh this is the place where we bring you just the facts. <laughs> and you did miss, because of the time difference in Israel, the Super Bowl and the Super Bowl halftime show.
0: Yes, we bring you just the facts. You brought a Super Bowl coverage because, Jill, uh, because of the time difference, Super Bowl started around 2 a.m. here. I tried to watch the beginning of the game and then passed out. <laughs>
1: Why, mother? <laughs> Little did I know
0: that uh, you did have to read between the lines and read all the news. So I didn't have to. While I was asleep overnight, incidentally, with some breaking news from here, the Super Bowl, there were a whole bunch of updates while I was sleeping for a few hours last night.
1: Well, that's right, Moshe, between the hostages that were rescued in your neck of the woods over there and also some other breaking news and an overtime Super Bowl game. It was (laughs) while you were sleeping, the world kept turning.
0: And I understand, Jill, uh, I will be headed back to the States on Wednesday But before then, you guys are going to get some snow. It's
1: true. So you are missing what could potentially be the biggest snowstorm in the Northeast in about two years. Am I
0: really missing it, though? (laughs) Am I missing it?
1: Happily. (laughs) Uh, About tens of millions of people are under a winter weather alert. New England could see a possible nor'easter. New York City's already said that schools will be going remote today. And they were like so careful to say, Mosh, this isn't a snow day. You still have school. You're just going to be remote.
0: Kids today, they don't know (laughs) what we went through as millennials. They were not. We were not getting snow days for anything less than a foot. Jill, just let the snowplow uh, folks over at JFK Airport know that I'm set to land midday Wednesday. So hopefully they have everything clear by then.
1: I'm thinking by tomorrow night, all is going to be
0: well. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it might be one of those days where like, the snow never really accumulates on the ground. We'll see if it's one of those storms.
1: OK, so let's get to some news here. We're going to start where you are, Moshe. What we know about the Israeli hostages that were rescued in Gaza. Biden versus Bibi. Increasing tensions between the two leaders over Israel's plans in Rafah. The latest on the shooter at Joel Osteen's megachurch. Why officials say that anti-Semitism could be one of the potential motives behind the shooting. TikTok, not just for teens. Joe Biden's presidential campaign has officially joined TikTok despite security concerns.
0: Brought the average age of TikTok up a beat. Jill.
1: Okay, so you took the joke I was going to do, but thought it was maybe too mean.
0: <laughs> I'm just going with the facts, Joe. I think that's actually accurate.
1: <laughs> Who will replace disgraced Congressman George Santos? New York's special election is today. What the results could mean for the rest of the country? Credit card nation. Americans owe more than a trillion dollars in credit card debt. The founder of Bob's Red Mill has passed away. The air we breathe is continuing to get worse. Climate change is reversing gains that were made to air quality all across the United States. And just ahead of Valentine's Day, cocoa prices are soaring. What it means for our Valentine's Day chocolate. And Moshe has on the same in history.
0: Jill, your clue today is work, Turn to the left, work, turn to the right, <laughs> work, Sashay. Mosh
1: Moshe, even offbeat or not with the music, I got it. All right, let's start in Israel where you are and the latest on that hostage rescue in Gaza this week. Two hostages, 60-year-old Fernando Merman and 70-year-old Louis Har. Both dual Israeli-Argentinian citizens, who were being held for 130 days, are now in good medical condition. After the rescue, they have been reunited with their families. So they were found on the second floor of an apartment building, being guarded by Hamas fighters in the southern city of Rafa, that is a city on the Egyptian border. Rafa, also the location where about 1.4 million displaced Palestinians are currently staying, and where Israel says the majority of Hamas battalions remain. During the rescue, Israeli soldiers shielded the hostages with their own bodies as other troops exchanged heavy fire with Hamas fighters. Israel carried out a series of airstrikes against Hamas targets in the city as part of the operation. At least 67 Palestinians, including women and children, were killed during the operation. That is according to Hamas. You may have seen those images today across social media as the overall death toll now surpassing about 28,000, about two-thirds of whom are civilians. Israel continues to call upon Hamas to release all of the hostages if they hope to end This four month plus war, Hamas said overnight that the Israeli rescue operation was part of a, quote, horrific massacre against defenseless civilians. It was only the second successful rescue mission since the start of the ground incursion into Gaza in late October. On October 30th, the IDF rescued a female hostage. More than 100 Israeli hostages are still in Hamas captivity, in addition to 29 others who are believed to be dead. Most of them, though, are believed to have been killed during the Hamas attack on October 7th, and then their bodies is basically dragged into Gaza. On Monday, it was still unclear how the hostage rescue would affect Israel's broader plans for a large-scale ground incursion into Rafah, where it says Hamas's top leaders are hiding, using the remaining hostages as shields. So, Moshe, I know that you were in Tel Aviv and happened to have an exclusive briefing at the Israeli military headquarters hours later.
0: Yeah, I thought they might cancel given uh, what unfolded overnight, but we got some incredible timing, and the defense minister Yoav Gallant uh, made some time for us and gave us uh, some insight into the rescue. He spoke to us about how challenging an environment it is there. By the way, this is an off-camera, no audio briefing, so I'm just going to relate to you uh, what I can tell you. He discussed how complex the environment has been in Gaza for rescues like this, and and why uh, they really are reluctant to go in unless they think they have very good information that they are able to go in and pull the hostages out alive. Uh, notably another uh, official I spoke to in the last day said uh, while they are cheering here in Israel, uh, this is a piece of good news and you can see it across the country today, you can see the reactions. Uh, it will have future consequences here. They can imagine that Hamas within their capabilities will be upping their security measures moving forward regarding the rest of the hostages. Notably, as we speak here, there are multiple reports of the heads of the CIA the Israeli Mossad, the Egyptians, and the Qataris are all set to meet today in Egypt uh, to discuss a larger hostage exchange. Uh, It remains to be seen how that rescue also impacts those negotiations. Uh, Back to Galant, though, one thing that he does note is that they have the momentum against Hamas. 18 of the 24 Hamas battalions are effectively uh, unable to fight at a pre-war level. While there might still be some fighters left in each battalion who can engage in guerrilla tactics, they don't have the same capability, not nearly the same capability they had before the war. As for the last six battalions, four of them, they believe, are left in Rafah, two in the central part of Gaza. And they're very intent on finishing their goal of ending Hamas's ability to target Israel moving forward. And Rafah, that city in the south, remains the last stronghold as far as they see uh, as we enter the fifth month of the war here. Over the weekend, we did mention that phone call between President Biden and Prime Minister Netanyahu, the U.S. telling Israel that it should not conduct an operation in Rafah without a credible and executable plan to protect civilians. Uh, There is a pre-war population in Rafah of about 300,000. Today, there's more than nearly about 1.5 million Palestinians there who've been displaced now multiple times from the north to Han Yunus, from Han Yunus to Rafah. And now they're set to be displaced again. Uh, there is an area north of Rafa, about a mile to two miles away, called Mawasi, where there's a number of people, but the UN says it is uh, jam-packed, and they don't think they have resources to be able to take on any more displaced people. So the big discussion you're going to see in the uh, coming weeks here, and it's fairly similar to the discussions you saw in regards to northern Gaza, and then Han Yunus is a uh, discussion with the Israelis their allies in the West, as well as Arab countries, about the approach to Rafa, warnings not to go in there, uh, the Israelis saying they got to go in there to get Hamas, similar to the conversation that you've seen play out now uh, multiple times during this war.
1: Samosh, one of the headlines that we've been seeing here in the United States is about this growing divide between Joe Biden and the White House and Israeli leaders, at least publicly, there appears to be this criticism and tension How is that playing in Israel? What are you seeing there?
0: It's fascinating to watch this, Jill, because, you know, we know this as journalists, that government officials are saying one thing behind closed doors and one thing publicly, uh, one thing when it comes to policy, and another thing sometimes when it comes to politics, And so you've seen in the last couple days here, you see rhetoric from the White House ratcheting up in terms of criticism of Israel. And it does come as they feel particularly vulnerable among young voters, progressives, Arab and Muslim voters in Michigan in particular, uh, in regards to their stance on Israel and whether that could hurt them in November. So there were meetings last week, campaign ads, senior White House staff going to Michigan to try to reach out to those populations. Now it appears multiple leaks come from the White House saying we're really challenging Israel here. We're really disappointed in Israel. And you can see that there's domestic politics uh, being played there. In particular, uh, something I took note of yesterday was an NBC report that, again, appears to be a White House leak where unnamed White House aides say that Biden is very upset with B.B., and actually calling him obscenities uh, behind the scenes. Uh, Get the bleep button ready here. I don't know if we have a bleep button, but among the names he's calling the Israeli prime minister, multiple times, earmuffs is asshole. Apparently, he's saying it a lot, and White House officials wanted to make sure NBC wrote that in their story. So it's interesting because, you know, clearly the White House is speaking to a certain domestic audience there, maybe also speaking to an Israeli audience. Here in Israel, Incredible thing is that plays positively here, too, because the way the domestic political scene plays here in Israel is it allows Netanyahu, the prime minister, to say, look, I'm standing up to America. Look how mad they are at me. I'm defending you, the Israeli people, uh, despite what the Americans might be telling you. So, in fact, the Biden criticism, Biden's hoping it benefits him in America. And ironically enough, it benefits Netanyahu here in Israel. And so it's fascinating to see this play out. And by the way, it's not just the U.S. and Israel saying something's behind closed doors and some things publicly. And I should note, by the way, the Israeli officials I speak to say behind uh, the scenes, you know, they have open lines with the White House, the State Department, the Pentagon. Everything's being coordinated, including that hostage rescue we just discussed. The Americans were uh, being updated every uh, moment of the way there as far as what was happening there. But you also see it among the Arab countries who Israeli officials tell me here, are telling them behind closed doors, finish Hamas. We don't like them either, specifically in Egypt, where uh, they would love to see them uh, done. They are a thorn in their side as well. And yet publicly, because of the support the Arab populations in Egypt, Jordan, across the region have for the Palestinians, at the same time, you hear those Arab governments publicly be very critical of Israeli moves.
1: Moshe, it is so fascinating, kind of the difference between the public stance and the private stance.
0: So for all of you listening, you know, we've talked to you about how complicated foreign affairs is, geopolitics, and then how complicated the Middle East is. Effectively, what you need to do is you watch each of these headlines come out. You got to figure out who's saying it, who's reporting it, what the potential audience is, what the potential cause and effect is, who's set to meet who the next day. Who has an election or a potential domestic problem? That's more of an issue uh, in Israel and the U.S., where they have free and fair elections. But the bottom line is, there's a lot more than meets the eye with a simple headline. And so, take a second here, and you know, we'll help to the extent that we even can along the way. Uh, try to explain why you might be seeing certain people say certain things at certain times. One other thing I'll mention, and I and we did discuss it uh, on yesterday's pod a bit. But it's another thing that I took away from uh, our briefings and conversations today, was just how much the you know Israeli government sees this as an existential fight, how traumatized this country is by the October 7th massacre, that they have zero intention of allowing Hamas to ever threaten them again, uh, even remotely in the way that they were able to on October 7th. And in talking about the destruction in Gaza, the infrastructure, et cetera, you know, they'll point the finger here continually at Hamas at 400 miles of tunnels underground that weren't effectively built in a uh, smart way. So there's a lot of collapsing happening across Gaza because of these multiple layers of tunnels that were built under it. And I was struck by one other thing an official told me. Uh, they said 2024 is not 1944, in reference to 1944 being a time where millions of Jews were being uh, killed in concentration camps and death camps in Europe. They said 2024 is not 1944. The Jews have a country, they will fight back, and they will destroy you if you try to kill them. And that is a statement that across the political spectrum, no matter how liberal as an Israeli you are or how conservative an Israeli you are, uh, they all stand behind.
1: Moshe, it is so fascinating. I have so many questions for you. I actually think maybe you and I should do just a conversation about this over on the premium podcast when you're back, kind of like a debrief. And I can ask you a bunch of questions and we can answer listener questions as well.
0: And Jill, by the time I'm done here, I probably have about 15 hours of interviews. (laughs) too. So we have a lot of content uh, that I've been collecting over the past couple of days.
1: Another perspective that I know you were getting is that of Palestinians, especially as everyone is trying to answer this question of what comes next. So what can you tell us on that front?
0: Yeah, we're getting all perspectives here. Uh, I have an interview later today with a couple younger Palestinians talking about how they see the future, how this war is impacting things, both among Palestinian Israeli citizens, as well as Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza. I was able to speak to a Fatah official, Fatah being the main party of the Palestinian Authority yesterday, a man by the name of Samir Senejlawi. He's been involved in the Palestinian movement since he was a kid. He was actually one of the young rock throwers in the first intifada in the 80s, he served five years in in Israeli prison. And he has moved up within the Palestinian Authority over time, uh, working on a game plan for what a Palestinian government for Gaza would look like afterwards. And in particular, found uh, his comments about Mahmoud Abbas particularly interesting. He's known him for more than 30 years. And he notes that when he was in his 20s, he was part of the next leadership movement. Uh, Abbas at the time was the number two in the PLO in the early 90s and said, you guys are the future uh, leaders of the Palestinian movement. I look forward to you guys taking over. He notes that 30 years later, Mahmoud Abbas is now in his 80s, and he and his friends are in their 50s and 60s, uh, retiring, and we're never part of that next generation because the older generation never stepped aside. So uh, you now have Abbas now in his late 80s, uh, and he's been one of the people who's been particularly outspoken. Uh, I said, how's it going for you? He's like, I'm not going to Ramallah anytime soon calling for Abbas to resign immediately. Uh, he's very critical that Abbas is moving about in his private plane during this war, that he hasn't addressed the Palestinian people, that he's not really even working towards peace or an end to the war here. And so he believes there needs to be fundamental change, uh, responsibility-taking within the Palestinian leadership, Palestinian government, You know, beyond blaming Israel for a variety of things. He thinks that there needs to be some responsibility there, some reform there. So it's a very fascinating conversation once you start to speak to some of these officials who've been around for a couple decades here, uh, been part of various movements. Uh, He was critical of the Palestinians for not taking the peace agreement, the state that uh, Israel offered back in 2007. He thinks that was a big mistake, but uh, believes Israel should not uh, stop engaging there, needs to make another offer. So that'll be another interview we bring to you as well in the coming days.
1: All right, all really fascinating stuff. Now to a story we've been following here in the U.S., the latest on the deadly shooting at Joel Osteen's church in Houston on Sunday. The person who opened fire at that mega church in downtown Houston was a 36-year-old woman who carried two guns, including an AR-15, and had a yellow rope that appeared to be some type of detonation cord for a bomb. This is all according to law enforcement officials. A search warrant is providing some new details about the shooting that rattled Lakewood Church. It's led by the televangelist Joel Osteen. It's one of the largest congregations in the U.S., the shooting ended quickly Sunday after the woman was shot and killed by off-duty police officers who had been hired to provide security. The shooter has now been identified as 36-year-old Genesee Yvonne Marino. Law enforcement officials added that she previously went by multiple aliases, including male names. Her assault-style type rifle had the word Palestine written on it. Officers also uncovered anti-Semitic writings during their investigation. Her ex-husband's family, officials say, is Jewish, and they speculate that there was some type of internal dispute amongst the family. Marino also brought her five-year-old son with her. During the incident, the shooter said that she had a bomb, though the search of her vehicle showed that there were no explosive devices. The big takeaway that I got was that this could have been a lot worse.
0: Yeah, she also apparently was spraying an unknown substance uh, on the floor there before she was shot. Jill Sally, the five-year-old, was shot during the incident. Uh, has been hospitalized. Was in critical condition as of yesterday. A man who's believed to be a parishioner of the church was also shot in the leg um, during the altercation. There, it happened around two p.m. on Sunday, just as the Spanish language service was beginning. So there's some speculation there as to whether that uh, played a role, or she was seeking some sort of target. During that. Either way, it appears there are a lot of concerns here in her background. She was put under an emergency health order back in 2016 by another family member. Law enforcement records also show that she had at least six prior arrests going back the last 20 years, including unlawful carrying of a weapon, evading arrest, assaulting a public official. So uh, we haven't gotten full details here on uh, whether she was legally owning those two guns, uh, given the background here, or what the state of uh, Texas laws are in regard to her background here, but clearly a number of red flags over time. Joel Osteen, by the way, has commented on this. He spoke at the press conference on Sunday uh, and has followed up, saying the community is devastated by the events, but they're grateful for the swift action of law enforcement. uh, And he is calling on everyone to continue to pray for healing and peace.
1: All right, lots of news to get to, but first we want to thank a couple of our sponsors. Our newest sponsor, Good Chop. They offer customizable boxes of high-quality meat and seafood delivered straight to your door. On your schedule, Moshe, I was very happy to open up my freezer the other day and see some steak and chicken and salmon. I cannot wait to try them.
0: Jill, let me know when the barbecue is. I'll be there.
1: (laughs) We're just going to have to dust off a little snow first. Um, The products are vacuum sealed and frozen at peak freshness. You could choose from over 70 high quality cuts, grass fed ribeyes, filet mignon, free range and organic chicken breasts, pork tenderloin and thick cut bacon, Plus, plenty of seafood options as well. We're all about sustainable, organic, antibiotic-free in our house, so this is all perfect for us. Beyond meat, they've got wild-caught fish. We mentioned the salmon, but they also offer shrimp and scallops. A couple of really great things to note convenience and quality. They source exclusively from American farms and fishers. They support local family farms and independent ranchers. And they're giving the Monus community a great deal. So go to goodchop.com slash monus120 and use the code MoNews 120120 to get $120 off your first four boxes. That's MoNews 120 at goodchop.com slash monus, M-O-N-E-W-S 120 for $120 off.
0: And staying with food and health here, we're always talking about various trends and how hard it is to get your nutrients. One way we here at the Mo News Podcast try to get all the important ones is through Athletic Green's AG1 powder. If I first tried AG1 more than a year ago as uh, I was annoyed having to get my nutrients from a whole variety of vitamins and keeping track of them. And what I love about AG1 is just one scoop with a glass of water in the morning. And I know once I down that glass that I'm getting more than 75 important ingredients Including tons of vitamin and minerals, pre and probiotics for gut health. Really is your uh, nutritional insurance policy. And as a longtime partner here at Mo News, they have a great deal for the Mo News community. They're giving Mo News listeners a free one year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs of AG1 with your first purchase. You can head over to drinkag onecom Mo News. That is slash Mo News for the special deal and to really take ownership of your health.
1: Time now for the speed read from Time Magazine. The Biden presidential campaign has joined TikTok despite the app being banned on most U.S. government devices because of security concerns. His campaign launched its account with the username at Biden HQ during the Super Bowl on Sunday in a launch video captioned. LOL, hey guys, AIDS quizzed Biden about his preferences for the big game. You may remember the president signed legislation in 2022 blocking most federal government devices from using TikTok. Several states have also adopted the measure. Lawmakers from both sides of the aisle have called for the app, which is owned by the Chinese company ByteDance to be banned in the US over concerns that the government of China could be able to access user data.
0: So despite all the criticism... TikTok, as we know, is very popular. One in three Americans. I think it's almost one in two Americans at this point, Joe, has TikTok. And the White House, obviously, very keen to energize young voters. Right now, a survey has shown that about 20% of Gen Z gets political information from TikTok. That was as of last year. I would actually find it hard to believe that it's still as low as 20%. I would say it's probably closer to 50% at this time. So uh, the White House has been trying to figure out ways to make Joe look cool with the youngins, with the youths. And uh, among them is the Dark Brandon meme where he has laser eyes. They're trying to play on conservative uh, mocking of him and they've tried to kind of take ownership of that. Uh, They do note that Biden's TikTok account is not run by the president himself, uh, but by his campaign team, uh, because keep in mind, they have banned TikTok for government accounts, but this is the campaign account. Uh, An official telling Axios yesterday that in a media ecosystem that is fragmented and personalized, it is important to hit every channel every platform they do claim though Jill that the campaign is quote incorporating a sophisticated security protocol to ensure security while on the app i don't know what that sophisticated security protocol is is that the two step authorization <laughs> or do they have something else
1: basically what everybody else has got it
0: <laughs> <laughs> but it's called sophisticated uh listen maybe they have something more uh, as of right now there's just one video a super bowl uh, themed video they put up on sunday So if you're on the talk, check out the uh, Biden campaign account and uh, we'll see how it's gaining traction or not uh, with young voters who have not been energized by him so far. Some of them are particularly critical of his stance on Israel. Some of them have been calling him Genocide Joe over what's going on uh, here in the Middle East. And so clearly they're trying to pull out all the stops uh, to get younger voters to come out for him in November.
1: I actually kind of liked the video. I thought they did a good job. I thought it was funny.
0: All right. Uh, Biden campaign, you won, <laughs> won over Jill yeah.
1: with your TikTok video. <laughs> okay, now to a political story in my neck of the woods, which I will be covering tonight at the GOP headquarters here in Nassau County. This from the New York Times. The candidates vying to replace George Santos in a special House election squared off last week in an exceedingly bitter debate. They are tangling over the roots of New York City's migrant crisis, abortion rights, and even the definition of assault weapons. This election is considered a toss-up. So Democrats are running former Congressman Tom Swasey He represented the 3rd District for three terms before deciding to run for governor, which he lost. But it was an open seat, which paved the way for George Santos to come in. Republicans are running a relative newbie in the political world, Mazi Pillop. She is an Ethiopian Jew. She emigrated to Israel from Ethiopia at the age of 12. She served in the Israeli military and then moved to the U.S. about 17 years ago. She is currently in the Nassau Legislature. So two polls show that Swazi has a slight lead, but is within the margin of error. And most we were mentioning the snowstorm that is expected tomorrow. So all of these elections always hinge on voter turnout. Yeah. There were a few days of early voting. So far, it's looking like more people showed up for early voting than they usually do, perhaps in anticipation of the snowstorm uh, that we're getting. So we'll see. We'll see how it goes.
0: Yeah, there's a couple of reasons we're watching it, not only because Jill lives in the district, not only because it's the old George Santos seat, but also because out of 435 House seats in the country, these days, because of gerrymandering, there's only about 50 that are actually competitive, that are actually swing purple districts that could go red, could go blue. And this happens to be one of them. So it gives you a sense of uh, where things might be going this political season, because Jill, voters in your district will not just vote tomorrow tomorrow but uh, they'll have to vote again for the seat in November. So this will determine who sits in the seat for less than a year. Uh, And then in November, you'll be voting again. But people will try to read into the tea leaves here and see uh, what this district said, what voters said. There are obviously a lot of issues at play here. Again, there's also, it's the aftermath of the George Santos experience. So that could be uh, playing a factor in how people vote tomorrow. But beyond that, immigration is certainly a big issue across the country, including in the district and having watched what's been unfolding on Capitol Hill in regards to immigration border uh, in the Senate, in the House. We'll see how that factors into voters' minds here. Jill, I know that abortion has also been playing big. Uh, that's part of the uh, Democratic strategy is to paint Republicans uh, as pro-lifers, as, as anti-choice um, on abortion. So immigration, abortion seem to be two of the bigger issues. Anything else you're hearing from folks on the ground there?
1: Well, taxes are always a huge issue, particularly here on Long Island, as is inflation and the cost of everything. As you know, (laughs) yeah, you may or may not have heard me complain about grocery shopping. I am not the only one, Mosh.
0: Jill, good segue to our next story.
1: From CNBC, collectively, Americans now owe $1.13 trillion on their credit cards. And the average balance per consumer is up to $6,360. Those are both historic highs. This is according to some end-of-year data from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. So this is up about 50 billion, or about 5%, from the preceding three-month period. Not only are more cardholders carrying debt from month to month, but more are increasingly falling behind on payments, according to recent reports. Economists say Americans are still contending with lingering inflation and the ongoing rise in interest rates, which forces them to depend more heavily on credit cards.
0: And that's just Jill when she's going grocery <laughs> yeah. shopping. That's just after Whole Foods. <laughs> that's just after Whole Foods. Forget about Target. So uh, a recent bank rate credit card debt survey shows that just over half of Americans, so 51%, typically pay their credit card bills in full and avoid interest. Well, that leaves the other half of America, 49% of consumers who carry a balance month to month. And that is up from a couple of years ago. Back in 2021, it was about 39% of Americans who who were carrying a balance month to month. And notably, right now, nearly six out of 10 Americans that have credit card debt have had it for at least a year. So they've been carrying it over for at least 12 months. That's also up over the last couple of years. With interest rates going up over the last couple of years, that has also meant that credit card interest rates have gone up significantly uh, in the 20% margins. So that impacts people in this continual debt situation. Makes it very hard to get out of it. One of the other stats uh, they were noting in this most recent report is that serious credit card delinquencies have increased across all age groups, but notably among 18 to 39. So I'm looking at you, Gen Z and millennials.
1: From USA Today, Bob's Red Mill founder, Bob Moore, died on Saturday. According to the company, he was 94 years old. That brand has become a grocery store staple selling several different kinds of grains, including oats, flour, and gluten-free grains like quinoa. Moore's passion for healthy foods helped lead him to start Bob's Red Mill in 1978 in Portland, Oregon, as a local company before gradually expanding its sales into more than 70 countries and employing about 700 people. The company saying in a statement that Bob's passion, ingenuity, and respect for others will forever inspire the employee owners of Bob's Red Mill And we will carry on his legacy by bringing wholesome foods to people around the world. We will truly miss his energy and larger-than-life personality.
0: Yeah, there's a great uh, CBS Sunday Morning profile of him from a couple years ago, from 2020, that uh, if you're interested in this or you're a big Bob's Red Mill family, like we are, uh, definitely worth watching. He started the company with his wife, Charlie, back in the 70s. As a local initiative, uh, I should note at the time, Jill, they were both approaching 50 years old. So never too late to start something that you might be passionate about.
1: most they would be on my first year 40 over 40 list, for sure.
0: Yes, exactly. So uh, they started that. She apparently, the uh, Charlie, who passed away a couple years ago, had an interest in nutrition and whole grain cooking. So that inspired the family to rent a farm, begin baking their own bread, set them on this whole journey that would eventually lead them to start Bob's Red Mill. Uh, you mentioned it's an employee-owned company. Back in 2010, on one of his uh, birthdays in his 80s, He made the company entirely employee-owned. It is now worth more than $100 million. And so we're all appreciative of uh, Bob Moore and Charlie Moore for uh, starting Bob's Red Mill. Quality product, Jill. And I know that not because I'm the baker, Jill, but I'm married to a great baker who uses a lot of their product.
1: We are big fans in my house as well. And you got to respect that it is it's real food uh, and that they didn't ever sell out to a bigger company.
0: And anybody who's at 50 years old learning how to mill grain (laughs) for the first time and and, uh, build an initiative.
1: All right. From Axios, after decades of progress in the U.S. toward cleaner air, climate change related events will cause a steady deterioration through 2054. The population exposed to dangerous days on the air quality index is likely to grow to 11.2 million between 2024 and 2054, an increase of about 13 percent. New research from the nonprofit First Street Foundation found that climate change is increasing the prevalence of two of the air pollutants most harmful to human health. Particulate matter, commonly referred to as PM2.5, And the tropospheric ozone, so PM2.5 are tiny particles emitted by vehicles, power plants, wildfires, and other sources. They can get lodged into somebody's lungs and then enter the bloodstream, causing or exacerbating numerous health problems. The West will be particularly hard hit by increasing amounts of PM2.5 emissions, mostly thanks to wildfires that are becoming more frequent and more severe.
0: Yeah, we've all become more familiar with the AQI rating in recent years, particularly in the U.S., the quality index and a lot of weather apps have incorporated them in now. And you know that when it gets maroon, when it gets to be above 300, that is a danger zone. And in California in particular, uh, this study finds that there are about three days a year like that right now, and that could go above 30. Over the course of the next couple decades, you mentioned the West, that's California, Washington, Oregon, they're all projected to see some of the worst air quality impacts here, chiefly from wildfire smoke, thankfully, we've had a couple of rainy seasons here during the El Nino uh, system. So haven't seen as much that we did see the situation in Canada um, explode last year. And then of course, that air came down into the US. So uh, significant numbers here in terms of the population of Americans who will see unhealthy air here. And it is notable because we've made great progress over the last couple decades. But now with climate related issues, drought, wildfire, we're really going to have to up the ante in terms of forest management, wildfire management, but also just be very sensitive to the fact that there are going to be some things that we can't control short term until the climate change momentum moves the other direction.
1: And finally, from CNN, cocoa prices are surging so high that even the biggest chocolate makers are struggling to stay profitable. That does not bode well for your wallet this Valentine's Day. Last Thursday, Hershey said it would cut about 5% of its workforce after historic cocoa prices and inflation-weary consumers dampened fourth-quarter earnings. Speaking of the climate, climate issues in West Africa, home to more than 60% of global cocoa production are damaging crop yields, constraining cocoa supply, and causing prices to soar. And uh, it's not looking like it's going to get better anytime soon.
0: Well, if we're going to do something about climate change, folks, they're coming for the chocolate. Um, So that's a big deal. Uh, Because it turns out, Jill, according to the National Confectioners Association, which you always got to take their numbers with a bit of a grain of salt or a... um, a, of chocolate.
1: <laughs> a, sprinkle 90- of, a sprinkle of chocolate because
0: <laughs> <sprinkle of> <laughs> the national and confectioners association according to their numbers says 92 percent of americans plan to share chocolate and candy for valentine's day that's like putin re-election numbers in russia i don't know who the eight percent are that aren't buying chocolate on valentine's day but that's according to the confectioners association the numbers four billion dollars will be spent at least that amount uh, on chocolate But it might be less this year, uh, given the prices, unless there's also shrinkflation when you buy that bag of chocolate. It tends to be a bit lighter than it has in previous years. So be on the lookout as you buy your sweetheart something sweet this week.
1: Everyone gets one bite of chocolate. That's it. (laughs) That's basically where we
0: are. (laughs) We're going to share it this year, (laughs) folks. All right, now time for On This Day in History. We begin in 1633, Jill. We don't often do the 17th century, but we'll do it today. Galileo Galilei. The astronomer, the mathematician, the philosopher arrives in Rome to face charges of heresy for advocating the following theory that the earth revolves around the sun. Galileo is like, I think this is legit. I don't think the earth is the center of the universe. At that time, the Catholic Church was like, heresy, unacceptable. (laughs) It turns out Galileo was right. He had to take one for the team. Galileo. Galileo, Galileo. Queen always understood Galileo. Let's fast forward here to the 20th century, the film Cabaret. Cabaret based on the musical by the same name, premiered starring Liza Minnelli, and a bit of musical history. Joe, as we teased at the top, RuPaul sings it way better than me. On this day, 31 years ago, Supermodel, You Better Work, hit the Hot 100 charts.
1: And most, you would have thought all of these years later, RuPaul's Drag Race, that he would be an Emmy winner because of it. So his career still going strong.
0: Yeah, and he was the first drag queen to really make it on the charts there. So, you know, really uh, pushing the boundaries there. Fun fact about RuPaul, Jill, his cousin, Cory Booker.
1: No way. <laughs> That's so interesting. I didn't know who, I didn't know where you were going to go. I thought you were going to say like me, like as in you. I didn't know. I didn't know where no, you were going No, with I'm it. not related.
0: <laughs> uh, I'm not aware of my relation to RuPaul. Uh, Jill, we could do a whole separate podcast on the famous cousins of U.S. senators because in neighboring New York, you have Chuck Schumer, Amy Schumer, then you have Cory Booker, RuPaul. I don't know about the other 98 Sanders in the Senate, but we can look into that. I bet we can find some interesting ties. And one more 90s musical hit. Tupac Shakur's All Eyes on Me album was released on this day in 1996. The first rap double album on a major label. It sold more than 10 million copies in the U.S., considered one of the best rap albums of all time. Of course, the rapper would be shot and killed within a year of that, but of course his music would live on. And finally... last Peanuts comic strip was published on this day 24 years ago in the Sunday newspapers just hours after the death of the creator, Charles Schultz.
1: All right, Moshe, that's a wrap. We want to thank everyone for listening to the Mo News podcast. If you like what you hear, share this with your friends. It really does help us grow. Please follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And if you haven't done so already, give us a review in the app store. That also really helps us. So we appreciate it.
0: Yeah, if you like the pod, let the world know. Can be a simple five stars with a a nice comment. We appreciate it. Also, for all of you who want to support here at Mo News, we have more options for you with Mo News Premium. We've launched group and family plans. You can get the whole family. You can get the friends aboard. Sort of like a Verizon deal or uh, a Netflix deal. You can get multiple accounts now at a discount. Uh, and with that, you can all support Mo News. You can get access to our members only Instagram feed, our premium podcast. Q&As, deep dives on the issues. And as I told the folks on Instagram, that Instagram feed, a lot less text, much more video, especially for those of you who like to listen to your news as opposed to read all the slides.
1: And the last plug that I'll give is that it's a lot less expensive than chocolate for Valentine's Day.
0: (laughs) And uh, much more nourishing.
1: (laughs) And it won't give you a bellyache. All right. On that note, we got to go.
0: Some Sometimes it might give you a headache, but we try not to do that.
1: All right. Bye, everybody.
0: Later. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.